0: Good to see you this morning. Uh, as John just read, if you have a Bible, I would love for you to open it to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, the words will be on the screen, but what you'll find is while predominantly will be in those 11 verses, I'm really going to highlight a lot of things out of about three of those. And so uh, if, if you maybe are a Bible writer or uh, or a, I shouldn't say a writer, none of you have written the Bible. But uh, if, if you mark in your Bible... Um, then uh, definitely might be something that you want to make some lines or circles or just to, to kind of remind yourself in the years and days uh, to come. We are in a second week of our series, Firm Foundation. Uh, and basically it's just this idea that New Year's brings all kinds of uh, new priorities or new goals or new aspirations. Uh, Their fresh starts are always exciting. Um, they're always uh, intriguing of what the future might hold. And those are all good things, But the, The thing I tried to drive home a little bit last week is that if if the foundation of your year is predominantly your goals or your aspirations, then that's a shifting foundation. Uh, 92% of the stat I used last week, 92% of people that set New Year's resolutions don't end up probably keeping them. And that's not to knock you. That's just to say the reality is a lot of times it's the New Year, but it's the same us. And so what we're looking at through this series is that saying this even in New Year's is not a bad thing. That there's actually some some firm foundations that we can build on from the sameness of God. And that's what we talked about last week. Just this idea that Jesus, Hebrews 13, 8, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. So if you want to go back and watch that on Facebook or YouTube, feel free to do so or podcast. You're more than welcome to do so. But that was. Where we were last week. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And today we're kind of building off of that with this idea of the gospel. And, and just the big picture of the day is we're going to be talking about the gospel. Now, we use that term a lot here at Journey. Um, I've used it a lot in the last 10 or so months as I have preached. And that's because the Bible writers use that word a whole lot. It's uh, from the Greek word euangelion. It's 76 times from what uh, the app that I use, is that word is used in the New Testament, 76 times. It's a prominent word in the Gospels. It's a prominent word in the New Testament. It's a prominent word here at Journey, as it should be. And so what we're gonna do today is we're just gonna look at like what the Gospel is. And basically the, the literal translation would just be good news, good news. But the question is good news about What? And the good news is this, that despite our rebellion against our creator God, that we were made in his image, and yet we want to do things our way from the beginning, from the garden, despite that rebellion, the good news of Christianity, and quite frankly, the good news of scripture, Old and New Testament, is that God moves towards us to redeem us and to reconcile us back to himself. That even in our rebellion, that God moves towards us to redeem us, to be reconciled. And some of you in the room today might be like, well, how is that good news? What if I don't want to be reconciled to God? To which I would just say, that's your call. But ultimately, what we talked about last week is that this is a God who is powerful, who is sovereign, who is wise, who exists outside of time, who is eternal who's holy and gracious and worthy of our worship. The Bible says he does whatever he pleases and that might not draw you in, but God says about himself that he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that he's merciful and gracious, that he's good and that he's for your right joy and pleasure. This is the God that wants to reconcile you back to himself. And the way he does that is through the good news of the gospel. So today we're gonna try to understand what the gospel is and what difference it makes in the life of a person. And because a new year is filled with all kinds of things like hopes, but also unforeseen struggles and difficulties that will come, we need a firm foundation beneath us. And the first layer was new year, same God. And we're gonna add on top of that layer, new year, same gospel. And so to do this, we're gonna look at a passage in that letter that Paul wrote the Corinthian church And as we do, I want us to look at three aspects within that text about the gospel and how it relates and affects a person. I want us to see that it's a timeless message of utmost importance, a timeless message of utmost importance. But then not just that, I want us to see it's a transformative message of great effect. So it's a timeless message of utmost importance, a transformative message of great effect. And lastly, I want us to see the grip of the gospel the grip of the gospel. So as we begin to discuss the gospel, I want us to look at the fact starting that it's a timeless message of just utmost importance. Notice in verse three, what does Paul say, verse three of chapter 15, what does Paul say about the importance of the gospel? He says, "'For I delivered to you as of first importance "'what I also received, that Christ died for your sins "'in accordance with the Scriptures.'" Now, I'm going to stop there and just kind of drill down in this verse. There's actually, believe it or not, a lot to unpack right there. And if you, anytime you read a text in the New Testament, but especially a letter, you have to kind of figure out where you're at in the letter. Just like if you were to receive a letter, you wouldn't just like read the end and be like, okay, I think I know everything that's been said. We want to look at, well, what has Paul said? Well, we, there's 14 chapters before this, but in those 14 chapters, Paul's done a lot of things. He's encouraged the Corinthian church. Like he's in the first chapter, he says that the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, the word of the cross, the gospel is the power of God. He's, he's encouraging them from the outset. He calls them saints. And if you read First Corinthians, you realize they don't always look like saints. Like saints is holy persons. Saints is someone who's set apart by God. And yet they are struggling with a lot of things so Paul's in here correcting them throughout the text. He's, he's correcting them for division within the church. He's correcting them for like literally suing brothers and sisters in the public court of law. He's rebuking them for celebrating sin in the church. He's giving them direction in regards to how to use the spiritual gifts that God has given them. He's exhorting them to elevate love over all spiritual gifts. That's right. First Corinthians 13, first and foremost, is a text about the church and how to love one another than it is a wedding, although it does apply. He does all of these things. He gives practical direction about what foods to eat, what foods maybe to avoid eating, not because those are unclean, but because if they've been sacrificed to idols, it might cause problems in a Gentile world. How to worship in the local church and to make it orderly. He talks about the posture we should have in our heart when we take communion, the Lord's Supper. He talks about all of these things in 14 chapters. And at the end, what does he say is the most important thing he could tell them? The gospel. The gospel more than all those other things of first importance is the gospel. And then he says this, this is the gospel. He launches into it. Verse three, that Christ died for your sins, our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And then verse four, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now I was trying to think about this thought experiment and and I'd love to open up for any kind of thoughts that you might have if you feel comfortable enough to, to give me an answer. But I was thinking through like, if, if you were to stand in line uh, at Shadrax, I don't know if y'all know what Shadrax is. Uh, if you were to go through Shadrax, and, and if you were to have like, just, you know, next to the person with the iPad that, that works magic and next thing you know, a beautiful, lovely creation of coffee appears. And if you were to, if that same person was to ask everyone that came through the line, what do you think is of first importance in Christianity? What do you think people in Jonesboro might say? Like the main point, the main focus of Christianity. Any, any thoughts? Feel free to shout them out if you think you have one. Sorry, I got to turn my mic down. I can't. Okay, maybe you're not comfortable and that's fine. I mean, this church has a ton of church. I mean, this town has a ton of churches, like everywhere. So, so I would hope at some point, like somebody would say, well, I think the gospel is the most important thing but I think you get a lot of answers too. I think not just culturally, but even I think churchgoers would struggle to go, I don't, I don't really know what's of, of most importance. I don't know. M- maybe it's being a good person, right? Like maybe it's just like, we don't want to be bad people. We want to, we, we want to be people that reflect God. So we want to be good people. Like that should be, should be number one, maybe. And maybe, maybe you'd hear like, you know, the, the more moral stuff, like you know, not having, not having sex outside of marriage. Um, at least if you grew up in the 90s, that's what I thought it was about for a long time. Even though in the pastor's home who preached the gospel, I was like, man, that's the number one thing, man. Purity culture. Maybe, maybe for you, it's, it's, it's that, man, you just, you don't dabble in the things that can get you in trouble. Uh, you don't, no drinking, no smoking, no chew, no running with guys and girls that do. That was the phrase back in the day. Maybe that's what would be of most importance to you. Maybe it's like, well, I think the mo- number one thing is just to pray, pray a prayer. Pr- pray that prayer and, and ask Jesus into your heart. That's the most important thing. Maybe some would say joining a church. Maybe if somebody, I mean, there are some in our community that would say it depends on what church you join. You gotta join the right, the right church, the right kind of church. Maybe it's how you vote. What's the most important Thing and and I brought this survey up a few uh, sermons ago, back in the fall. But Ligonier's State of Theology Survey that they do every two years in 2022. They now let me explain. This is a poll of U.S. Evangelicals. Us. This is a poll of us, people like us typically who would, who would believe the gospel needs to be preached, who would, who would say that, that, well, most would say that the Bible is God's word. This is a question. So this is a position that the survey states and then they ask the person in the survey whether they agree or disagree. And here's the statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. That's the statement. U.S. evangelicals, 5% said they somewhat agree with this. 38% strongly agree. 43% of people like us say he was a good teacher, not sure that Jesus was actually God. And if Jesus is merely a good teacher, then the gospel is, first of all, not of utmost importance because, frankly, the gospel wouldn't be news, but would be Teaching. The gospel would be good advice, but the problem is if you look at what Paul says, the gospel is a message of news. And there are three critical pieces to it. The first piece is that Jesus died for our sins. In fact, when Paul would write this same church again in the book that we call Second Corinthians, this is the way Paul says it in verse 5:21. For our sake, He, God, the Father, made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. (coughs) God, the Father, makes God, the Son, to be sin. Jesus was sinless, the only person to ever exist that is sinless, and yet God said, I will make Him to be sin, and why would He do that? for our sake and then there's a purpose so that we might become the righteousness of God, a righteousness that we don't possess but that we may actually receive. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange, that, that Jesus takes the place that we deserve. He dies for our sins. He took the, and, and here's the other thing, when Paul talks about uh, this in Romans, I think it's really clear because you might be thinking like, well, why does Jesus have to die for our sins? Well, Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. That what our rebellious acts, our intentional acts, our unintentional sin, what that deserves, what that earns for us is death. Physical death. We see that in the garden. God, because he's for your right, Good joy and pleasure says you can eat of all this bounty that I've made for you to enjoy. Just don't eat of that tree because if you do, you will die. Sin creates physical death, but it also creates separation from God, a, a spiritual death of sorts. It's massive and yet, The end of 623 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's a free gift and it's found in a person, Jesus Christ. Despite our sin and what we deserve, Jesus dies for our sins. He took the wages that we deserve and he freely gives us himself his life that's everlasting and increasing the very opposite of death, the great exchange. Jesus, our substitute, Jesus, our hope. Part one of the gospel message for Paul, Jesus died for our sins. Part two, Jesus was buried. And you might be like, why does that matter? Well, believe it or not, not just does Paul make a big deal about it, but the Apostles' Creed, which was written several, like two or three centuries after Christ uh, ascended to heaven, the Apostles' Creed makes it very clear as well that he was crucified dead and was buried. This is something the church has recited for 1,700 years-ish. And it makes a deal about being buried. Why would that be? And that's because you have to do something with the spontaneous Rise historically of Christianity. Like even back then, they had, to, they had to do something with the fact that these monotheistic Jews, these, these Jews that worship one God, the maker of heaven and earth, in the midst of pagan culture that worship multiple gods, these Jews they, they worship one God, and yet out of nowhere they start to worship a a Jew as God. You gotta explain that. So, something's, gotta, something's gotta be with that. And so there's people then and now. I mean, back then you read, I think it's in Matthew. I think we talked about it back in the spring that they had to concoct this story about how he was disappeared and what happened and the disciples stole his body and that's not uncommon even today like people just have to deal with the fact like historically Jesus of Nazareth existed so what do we do with this spontaneous rise of Christianity this this launching out of a bunch of Jews and then eventually Gentiles that believed that this guy was God in the flesh Something happened and we've got to come up with a story like maybe he wasn't really dead, right? Maybe when they buried him, he was buried alive even though he was stabbed in the side and water's flowing out of his body and his legs are broken and he's scourged and beat and he's nailed to a cross for six hours. Maybe he really wasn't dead and four days later, three days later, he's gallivanting down to Emmaus in Luke 24, no problem. Problem with that, though, is you have to at least deal with the fact, well, did he heal himself? Because then he could be God. I mean, you got all kinds of issues, but people, you have to do something. And so there is a group of people out there over history that just believe, well, maybe he really didn't die. And Paul's saying, no, no, he died for our sins and he was buried in a tomb for three days, guarded by Roman soldiers who were a little more equipped for battle than some fishermen. He died. He was buried. But thank God it doesn't end there. Part three, he was raised on the third day. And I think we know this because we celebrate Easter and we celebrate this every week. I mean, you say that on Easter, but it's true. Like there's a reason we hold worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, the day that he was resurrected. We do celebrate this all year all the time, but I think for a lot of us, we focus so much on the cross that we misunderstand that without the resurrection, we would be hopeless. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus wasn't raised, we all in trouble. Jesus' resurrection is, is the proof that God was satisfied with the sacrifice. Of God, but it's more than proof. The resurrection of the Son of God means that we can actually have life in Him because He is alive. This is the gospel, the message of Jesus' substitutionary death, His subsequent victory over death and sin through His powerful and bodily resurrection. Yes, bodily. He was not a ghost, He had a body. And this has all kinds of implications for creation, just for for the creation we already have, the original creation that God made. It has all kinds of implications for new creation. Like, I don't know if you knew this, in eternity, you will have a body. This This is, for some people, they're like, what? I thought I was gonna be on a cloud. I thought I was gonna have to figure out how to play a harp. No. Now, if you wanna play a harp, that's between you and God. I don't particularly care for that, but... More power to you. You're going to have a body. You're going to eat. You see, Jesus having a bodily resurrection actually has implications for the creation God made, that it wasn't worthless, and the creation He's going to recreate in the end of times. It has all kinds of implications for the way we treat one another. And Paul is basically saying, because you can tell in 1 Corinthians 15, a lot of this is driven by the fact that there are some naysayers of the resurrection. And Paul is saying, this is how he, carries on in the letter he then starts to talk about you don't believe in the resurrection I, I can tell you people who have seen him verse 5 he appeared to Cephas that's Peter then to the 12 then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep that's like Paul's way of being like you're not sure go chat with some of these brothers brothers and sisters there's 500 of them that he, that he showed up at one time and they all saw him then he appeared to James that's his brother who ultimately worships Jesus Interesting. I couldn't worship my siblings. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and on the third day was raised. It's news. It's the gospel message. And another nugget this is, by the way, if you're like, oh my gosh, he's still in the first point, I am. But the next two are, are quicker, <laughs> so you can breathe. Another nugget, though, that we see in this of the gospel I want you to see is just, and uh, maybe just take, because I don't have time to really expound on this, and some of this is going to be next week, too, but just kind of deposit this in your heart for later contemplation that Paul says the gospel, that Jesus' says, death, burial, and resurrection, that it was in, the, in accordance with the scriptures. What does that mean? Because he's not talking about the scriptures he's writing. He's talking about the Old Testament. It means that what Jesus accomplished in history was something that scriptures promised and foretold. Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament law, the hope of the prophets and the promised blessing of Abraham The sacrificial system, the light that Israel was intended to be to the nations was always awaiting this true fulfillment in the eternal Son of God coming in human flesh. This is why in his second letter to the Corinthian church, Paul says this about Christ, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen. That means so be it to God for his glory. The gospel of Jesus Christ was the answer to the long-awaited promises of God. He died, he was buried and was raised in accordance with the scriptures. I have to stop there because that's next week. Same story is next week. But, but this is where we're at. It's in accordance with scriptures. And the last thing I want you to see from verse three is that the gospel is a message that needs to be delivered and received. Delivered and received. Look again at verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul receives the gospel message and in turn delivers the gospel message. This is the way news works. You see, if the gospel was simply an epiphany, then maybe we could just get alone, meditate, and try to catch the gospel vibe, whatever that is. It's a vibe. Like maybe we could just meditate and catch the gospel vibe. If the gospel was some insight or, or just like st- realization that we could have maybe we could try and tune into the universe and just try to discover this truth. And if the gospel was merely teaching because Jesus was merely a teacher then we would be trying to do to do the gospel. Like we do algebra or physics. You don't do the gospel because you're not God. Jesus is the only one who has done the Gospel, who has died, was buried, and was raised. The Gospel is not a realization, it's not an insight, it's not an epiphany. We learn the Gospel message, yes, and we learn how it affects our life, sure, but it's not merely a teaching like Jesus is not merely a teacher. The gospel is a message of good news that Jesus died for our sins, was buried and was bodily raised three days later to claim victory over sin and the penalty of sin, death. This first point is the rebar of your foundation. It's the stability, it's the very It's the very thing that makes it a foundation in the first place. It's what holds it all together, if you will, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, when you think about the gospel, is this what you think of? And do you think of it as first importance? If not, I just pray that maybe today is the time that you would reorient your mind and your heart around the gospel because while it is a new year, it is the same gospel message that has been the foundation of every Christian's life for 2000 years. Yet while the gospel is unchanging, one certainty of this good news is that it will most definitely change you. Beginning in verse nine, we see some of the effects of the gospel. That it can have on a person. Starting in verse nine, here's what Paul says: "For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God." Now, Paul's a fantastic case study in the actual reach of the gospel. You know, I think for a lot of us, we, we read the New Testament, we we read Paul, and we're like amazed by Paul. Like we're two thousand years later, we know like that he wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit two thirds of the New Testament that we have. We know that that he was the greatest missionary to ever live besides Jesus. Yet, you can understand that when Paul shows up on the scene in Acts, people are afraid of him. Like when he says he persecuted the church, he wasn't talking smack to Peter on Facebook. He wasn't asking a Christian baker to make him a cake for his bar mitzvah. He was hauling people out of their houses to either throw them in jail or to execute them because they were worshiping a Jew as God. And he said, no, 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 that, that is heresy, that is blasphemy, you are done. I'm going to snuff this out myself. This was Paul. This, he was a murderer, he was a threat to people. He was terrorizing the church until Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus and tells Paul to stop. And you can imagine if you're persecuting people because you think they're worshiping a dead guy and that guy shows up, you're gonna listen. He stops in his tracks and it completely changes his life. He's converted. Jesus reveals himself to Paul And the gospel message is received. It's it's preached and it's received by faith. Therefore, Paul continues in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. How many of us can say that? And by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. I, I read that just two days ago and I had to stop. May that be my story. I am who I am by the grace of God and His grace did not come to me in vain. It changed me. Sorry, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that was with me. Five, five was 1510. Paul is what he is. He's a, a missionary, a church planter among the Gentiles, a Holy Spirit-inspired spirit writer of the New Testament by the grace of God. And when you read Paul, you see so much Old Testament in his letters, which interestingly, his training in the Old Testament is what made him so, such a threat initially to the church. But as the gospel takes root in his heart and shapes his understanding of reality, all of a sudden, that Old Testament that at once made him a threat and a persecutor now made him so able to show that Jesus was the amen to all of God's promises. God redeems that part of his story and uses it to actually spread the gospel How does the good news of Jesus then enter your life, enter any person's life and begin to have an effect like this? Like a a murderer, persecutor completely flipped who would then die for Messiah, who would live his life traveling around, shipwrecked, uh, bit by snakes. I mean, all kinds of stuff, just trying to share the gospel. What would do that? Well, verse 11, whether it is I or they, so we preach and so you preach. Believed. How does the gospel come in and change your life? It's preached to you and you receive it with faith. That's how it works, belief. It's no different today. The gospel message must be delivered to you and you must receive it with faith. But when you do, the grace of God will begin to change you. It reconciles you to God, your creator, and Jesus takes your sin upon himself on the cross so that you might become the righteousness of God. So that we as a people might become the righteousness of God. The gospel message redeems your past. It adds value to your story. It brings as we've already saying, beauty from ashes, it brings, turns graves into gardens. This is the effect of the gospel on a person immediately upon faith. And this is the effect of the gospel on a person throughout their life. I said that correctly. The gospel is not simply good news you believe to be saved in a moment. The gospel has a lifelong grip. A lifelong grip. Because while all of this is good news, it's probably this point that's the most freeing and foundational of the aspects of the gospel. The gospel has grip. Once the gospel of grace, and more importantly, once the God of the gospel of grace takes hold of you, his grip is sure. And that's a firm foundation for our existence now and forever. I think it's possible, because I know I've seen it, for a lot of us that grew up in evangelicalism, in, in the church, with invitations at the end of the service, we have a danger, I think, of misunderstanding the enduring power of the gospel. Like if you're understanding of our response to the gospel is simply praying a prayer, coming forward to join the church, only to move on to more serious discipleship that extends beyond the gospel, then you have not let 1 Corinthians Corinthians 15, 1 and 2 sink deep enough into your heart because the gospel has enduring grip and power for the entire life of the Christian. Let's finish with those first two verses of chapter 15. Paul says this, now I would remind you, brothers and sisters of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast, to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. It's interesting that Paul reminds Christians about the gospel. You've thought about that? I mean, he calls them saints, set apart holy ones in the first, first like two words, first two verses of the letter and he's reminding them at the end of the gospel. How many of you, I mean, if you're like me, I mean, I'm a preacher's kid. I grew up in church. How many of you, especially the group, maybe in a Baptist church where you had an invitation, have heard the gospel? And once you start to hear the gospel, you're like, oh, I'm checking out. I've oh, done that, been there, done that. This is for those that, you know, this is for those in the room or, or nowadays online. We didn't know what that was when I was growing up, but online, this is for them. If you tune out of the gospel, you don't understand the full enduring grip of the gospel because Paul preaches again the gospel to Christians. And it would only make sense that he would do that if, if the gospel is more than the entry point of Christianity. But it is because that's exactly what he says Because while the gospel message must be preached and received, this is conversion initially. What we receive by faith, though, makes us righteous before God in a moment as we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's back to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Yet, Paul also says the gospel is that in which we stand. It's our foundation, It's the foundation of every Christian's life and faith is the gospel. That means the gospel is the solid ground on which you build your day, your week, your month, your year. The gospel is the foundation on which we build relationships, our views on life, our views on money, our views on sex, our views on how we spend our time, our view on entertainment, our view on vacation, our view on possessions, our views on food and drink. The gospel which we receive is the one in which we stand and the gospel by which we are being saved. We are made right with God in a moment by faith in the good news of Jesus Christ, and then over our life, the gospel of grace works in us salvation by transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. This is the grip of the gospel. It holds you fast. We receive grace through faith in Jesus. We stand on grace through faith in Jesus, and we are saved and transformed into the image of Jesus by faith and grace in Jesus That's why Tim Keller says this: the gospel is not the A B C of Christian of Christian life, but it's the A to Z of Christian life. Brother, sister, look at me, please. I want you to get this: you don't graduate from the gospel. You don't graduate from the gospel you just go deeper into the depths and marvel at the grace and goodness of God. The depths, because as a seven-year-old, I understood I needed a savior. And as a 42-year-old, I'm still amazed at his grace. It's something that I can simply understand as a child, and yet I can never exhaust the depths. I can never swim deep enough to find rock bottom of the gospel. It just keeps going. It's the A to Z of Christianity. And when you see the glorious God of the gospel and the depths to which this timeless message transforms those who receive it, you don't want out of its grip. But the good news is that even if you did, you wouldn't be able to escape it. You don't want out of the grip of the gospel. You would gladly tether your hopes and all your dreams to it. And even when you don't understand the fires that may come into your life, even if there's storms to come in 2023, you know your foundation is secure. New year same God, new year, same gospel. But as we close, our call to action is that while it is the same gospel, there will be some unique opportunities this year. And so if you're here or you're watching online today and you would go, you know what? I don't follow Jesus, but I'm intrigued. What I would encourage you with is that the first part of what is necessary has already happened. I have preached the gospel to you. What you need is to receive it with faith. To believe that you are a sinner in need of a savior that you have rebelled and yet in your rebellion, the creator did not push you away but actually initiated. He drew into you and he's drawing you to himself even now because if you're within earshot of my voice, the creator is drawing you in. A gospel message, that must be delivered and received. It's been delivered. Do you receive it? And for those in the room who have received already the gospel with faith, Christians, have you tried to graduate from the gospel? I know I've shared this before, but I don't remember how long ago it was. It wasn't last week, so I feel like I can share it again. I was saved at seven. Uh, Dad's a preacher, but. about 20, 28, 29 years old, I vividly remember it. I was sitting at, an, at my apartment on South Carraway. Genevieve and I had not gotten married yet. We were dating, uh, been divorced a few years prior. And uh, this is about 14 years ago. And I just remember I, I was very, felt very heavy. Uh, certain things in my life I couldn't fully control certain things in my life that I could. And I was just making not the best decisions, some straight up not good decisions. And I, um, I remember calling my dad, just completely, completely sad. It was like a Saturday. My kids were with their mom. And so like, I just was home alone. And I remember calling my dad weeping. And in that conversation, he said, Nathan, do you believe God loves you? I said, I have no idea why he would. I had tried to graduate from the gospel. What happened, instead of First Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, I received the gospel, but I was standing and being saved by me. And so if I was having a, just an awesome day, you know, like read the word, felt the Lord's presence, helps an old woman across the street, or man. You know, if, if I'd done all the things, we'd be like, wow, that's a good, he's a good dude and he loves Jesus. Man, then I might feel close to the Lord. I might feel like he was actually proud of me. But on days that I struggled, on days that I gave in to temptation, on days that I snapped at my kids, on on days that I did things that I would not be proud of, in those moments, the the gospel was not what I was standing on or what I was being saved with. Instead, I was being saved by me or the lack thereof. Brother or sister, have you tried to graduate from the gospel? Because I can tell you, when you do that, it's exhausting, Maybe for you today, the unique opportunity you have is to dive deeper into the depths of the gospel and the love, the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. And the last one, if you're a follower of Christ, the last unique opportunity you're gonna have in 2023 is to declare the gospel, to to preach it, to, to proclaim it to people that don't know him. New year, same gospel but unique opportunities in your heart and in your life to make it even more real than it was. It's the gospel on which you are saved in a moment. It's the gospel on which you stand. And it is the gospel by which you are being saved into the image of Jesus Christ now and one day forevermore. Build your, ro- your house on the foundation of an unchanging God and an unchanging gospel. We're gonna pray and allow the spirit to encourage, to convict. Maybe, maybe you're in the room and, and he needs to go, hey, hey, you're trying to relate to me by works. Yeah, you know you're saved by grace initially, but you're trying to stay in the fold by works, And he just wants to remind you that the grip of the gospel is all you need. Now, you might be like, dude, are you just saying this is like easy? There's no holiness? No, that's two weeks from now. So if you wanna skip that week, I would recommend you don't. That's same pursuit, that's coming. But the only way you can pursue holiness in right understanding is to have the foundation of the unchanging God and the unchanging gospel. So let the Spirit encourage convict, and then let's praise his name. Our Father, we are your people. Scriptures say, we are your people and the sheep of your pasture, and that you are our shepherd. And sometimes like sheep, we wanna wander away. Sometimes like sheep, we just don't understand things in life. But we are yours through the gospel, for those who profess faith, we are yours. Would you assure us of that? Would you draw us deeper into the love you have for us, into the good news that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried for three days and yet rose again. Our substitute, our exchange, would you make that real in every aspect of our lives for the glory of your name, for our right joy and pleasure in you, for your good name to spread across the earth from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. You are God, we are your people. Assure us of that, convict us where we need, and. Raise us up to be faithful stewards of the gospel that we would be who we are by grace and that we would not have received it in vain. Amen.